We've been in the book of Mark, and so far the disciples of Jesus have been out doing ministry with him, and they've seen and they've heard some very amazing things. But as we come to the last section of chapter 8, you'll notice a shift or a change that takes place. It's time for Jesus to, I would say, show his cards to his disciples, or rather all of his cards, to reveal more about himself and what the future looks like. And we're going to see that this doesn't totally match the ideas that the disciples have about Jesus. And so in our short text this morning, Jesus is going to reveal to his followers who he is, what he's come to do, and what that will mean for his followers in the days ahead. And Jesus' words are not just for his immediate followers. They're also words that can be applied to us as his modern-day followers because it's very important for us, as it was for the first disciples, to know what it means to follow Jesus too. And we're going to read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, and we'll go through chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So, to follow Jesus, the first thing in our text that's necessary to understand is who Jesus is. And so the first point is knowing who Jesus is. Knowing who Jesus is. There are many in our world who are trying to diminish or to dismiss who Jesus is. And some will do it rather harshly. They'll say, well, there's no God. Jesus is a fake. Others will do it quite nicely. They'll say, you know, I really respect Jesus. You know, what, what a great teacher. And at the same time, they'll deny that he is God. 
But either way is false. And, and if you will take time to read through the Gospels, you will find eventually that you'll be forced to decide that Jesus is either God or he is greatly insane. And we believe, of course, the truth is that he is God. Jesus wants his disciples to know this, and so he asks in verse 27, Who do people say I am? They reply, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. So Peter tackles this question of who is Jesus, very courageous, and he proposes to Jesus, you are the Christ. He uses a word literally that means anointed one. And kings were traditionally anointed with oil as a kind of coronation. But the word Christos had come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who is going to make everything right. You are the Messiah, Peter says. Jesus accepts this title. Peter got it right. Way to go, Peter. And that's the first step, and that's the first point this morning, that if you're to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be clear about who he is. Enough of this nonsense about him being a fictional character or a good man or maybe a really good teacher. He's the Messiah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so a follower of Jesus Jesus Christ needs to be clear on that. Peter got it right. But there's no time to affirm Peter here because Jesus wants to reveal more about what it means to be a follower of him. Jesus knows that it involves more than knowing who he is, though that is essential and important, but also accepting what he does. Accepting what he does. And what he does, or will do, comes out clearly in verse 31 and 32. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus says, Son of Man referring to himself, the Messiah, must suffer. In other words, he says, yes, I'm the king, but I'm not anything like the king that you were expecting. You see, no one up until this moment had connected suffering with the Messiah. There were the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, which you can see, but no one had ever associated those texts with the hope of the Messiah. And so this notion that the Messiah would suffer in the Jewish mind made no sense at all because the Messiah was supposed to come and defeat evil and injustice and make everything in the world right. Peter probably was thinking, how could Jesus defeat evil by suffering and dying? It seemed ridiculous, impossible. But by using the word must, Jesus is also indicating that he is planning to die. That he is doing it voluntarily. 
So he's not merely predicting that it will happen. That's probably what offends Peter the most. It's one thing for Jesus to say, I will fight and be defeated, but but it's a whole another thing to say, this is why I came, I intend to die. Peter has no explanation for that. And that's why as soon as Jesus says it, Peter begins to rebuke him. And the word rebuke is also used when Jesus is dealing with demons. So that means Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. So in a few verses, we have Peter going from calling Jesus the Messiah to the condemnation of him. Why does he reject this so strongly? Because ever since Peter and the other disciples were young, they had been taught that when the Messiah came, he would defeat evil and injustice and he would ascend to the throne. But Jesus comes and he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, but I came not to live, but to die. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm here not to rule, but to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil. And so Peter and the disciples have to be shocked. This does not fit the template. This does not fit the narrative that they have for Jesus. This is not on their agenda. And Jesus not only says that he would suffer, he said the Son of Man must suffer. In other words, what Jesus said was not, I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. Now, why would it be absolutely necessary for Jesus to die? I think we have to think about that. A few weeks ago, if you were with us, we talked about how each one of us needs love. And we seek it from one another. We need to be loved, just like we need air and water. And so we seek that love from one another. But the only problem is that none of us can love with a perfect love like we desire and need. Now, granted, some of us may may be healthier than others, and perhaps some of us can give more of that unconditional, self-sacrificing love that we all desire. But the reality is that none of us can give the kind of true love that we all need and desire. But remember the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who have been knowing and loving each other perfectly for all eternity. Do you remember us talking about that? God has forever had all the love, all the fulfillment, and all the joy that he could possibly want. And he has the perfect love that all of us lack. And and so the only way that we're going to get any more of it is from him. So God sends Jesus to redeem us at the cross because he loves us. And he knows that we need his love. So that's one reason that Jesus said he must die. But we don't just need Jesus' sacrifice personally, we also need it legally. And let me explain that. This is interesting. If someone really wrongs you, it creates a debt that has to be paid by someone. It might be emotionally or it could be a financial debt, but let's try to make it concrete here. Let's pretend that a friend of yours comes over and they accidentally smash a lamp in your house. Okay, I don't know how they do that, but let's just just work with me here for a minute. A friend comes over, accidentally smashes the lamp in your home. 
So at that point, one of two things needs to happen. You could say to your friend, that'll be $100, please. You owe me, right? Or you could say, I forgive you. It's okay. But if you take the forgiveness route, what, what happens to the $100? You have to pay it yourself, or you have to lose $100 worth of light and get used to a darker room. But either your friend pays the cost for what was done, or you absorb the cost. And, and this is true of things that aren't financial as well. When someone robs you of an opportunity or they rob you of happiness or of your reputation or they take something else from you that you'll never get back, it creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated. This person owes you. And once you sense that debt, again, there are only two things that you can do with that. One thing you can do is try to make that person pay. You can try to destroy their opportunities or their reputation. You can hope that they suffer or try to make them suffer. But there's a big problem with that. Because, and they might deserve this, but as you're making them pay off the debt, as you're making them suffer for what they did to you, you're becoming like them. You're becoming harder and colder and more like them, and evil has won. What else can you do? Well, the alternative is to forgive. But there's nothing easy about real forgiveness. Sometimes you hear the pastor talking about forgiveness. You say, oh, it sounds so good. But, you know, when you think about it and you try to do it, there's nothing easy about it. When you want to take revenge, but you refuse to do so in order to forgive, it hurts. When you refrain, when you forgive, it's agony. Often. Why? Because instead of making the other person suffer, you're absorbing the cost yourself. You aren't trying to get your reputation back by tearing their reputation down. You're forgiving them and it's costing you. That's what forgiveness is. True forgiveness means suffering. It it has a cost to it. And so the debt of wrong doesn't vanish. Either they pay or you pay. But here's the kicker. Only if you pay that price of forgiveness, only if you absorb the debt, is there a chance of righting that wrong. Because if you have vengeance in your heart and you try to confront someone on the wrong that they've done, and we've all probably done this, they probably aren't going to listen to you. Because they're going to sense that you're not really seeking justice, but revenge. And they'll reject what you say, likely. And it will likely escalate in your relationships. And so only if you've refrained from vengeance and you've paid the cost of forgiveness will you have any hope of getting them to listen to you or seeing their own error. But they still may not. Even if if they don't listen to you, your forgiveness breaks the cycle of hurt. So... If we know that forgiveness means suffering for the one who's forgiving and that the only hope of righting wrongs comes by paying that cost of suffering, then we shouldn't be surprised by God saying, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is to suffer. We shouldn't be surprised by God saying, either you will pay the penalty 
or I will. Because sin always has a penalty. Guilt can't be dealt with unless someone pays. We legally need Jesus' death on the cross. The only way that God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it in Himself. I must suffer, Jesus said. And by suffering, Jesus not only paid for our sin, but He conquered death and the corruption of this broken world. And and the world has many tools to try to make us afraid. And I think the worst one is probably death. Um, When you know that someone or something powerful can kill you, you're scared. And so they can use fear to try to control you. But since Jesus died and he rose again from the dead, if you can find a way to approach Jesus and cling to him, you know that death, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you, is not that scary. Sure, we're scared of it, but if we're clinging to Jesus, we know there is a way through that. That in our death someday, it will put us in God's arms and it will, it will lead us to all that we've hoped for. Uh, and when death loses its sting, as Corinthians talks about, when death no longer has power over us because of what Jesus did on the cross, then we can live a life of love and not a life of fear. So, following Jesus means knowing who He is in His fullness, accepting what He does, that He's the King, and He's the King that must die for us. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So if we are to follow Christ, Jesus said, we must deny ourselves. It means taking up your cross or denying yourself. This is a difficult thing. We can't build our identity on anything or anyone else but Jesus which means denying ourself. A reminder that our life comes from God, that we belong to Him. As people make confession of faith, they pledge that their life belongs to Him and they seek to live for Him, to deny themselves, to bear fruit and live for Him and know the joy of serving Him. That's what we're after, to follow our Lord Jesus in all aspects. If we're to follow Christ, Jesus says... We must deny ourselves. It's not enough to be a tree in God's garden. His desire for us is to bear what? Fruit. Yeah, that as His Spirit is at work in us, that we are bearing fruit that shows we belong to Him. And so in this world that says, find yourself, love yourself, Jesus says, no, lose yourself. Because only in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, can we find our true self and be who He has created us to be. Jesus says you cannot follow Christ without knowing fully who He is, accepting all that He has done and wants to do in your life, and by denying yourself. And so my encouragement, my hope, my prayer for you is that God will give you the application of His Word this morning.